Hey friends, just to give you all a heads up, the pod is on Apple Podcasts now. I will put my link tree in the description of this episode if you want to head on over that way, or you can just go on Apple Podcasts and search for Adaptable. Also, if you don't mind to rate and review, it really helps other people be able to notice and see the podcast and just to be able to reach others in general. Thank you so much in advance, and I can't wait for you to join us for this week's episode. Welcome to episode three of the pod. I'm so excited that you could join me here for a little bit as we talk about this week's story, which is Howl's Moving Castle. I can't guarantee that there won't be any spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't read or watched Howl's Moving Castle and plan on doing so, please be forewarned before we get started. It is September 6th when I'm recording this. It's going to be September 7th when I upload, but it has been so beautiful and pretty where I live, and I am really getting into the fall mood and spirit, and I just have to say that this book really encouraged that even more. Whenever a book or movie talks about wizards or witches, I always sort of associate that with Halloween. Like, as a child, I always associated Harry Potter with Halloween, and I don't think many people around me did, and I would always be like, Harry Potter's my favorite book to read at Halloween, and people would kind of stare at me weird because I guess they didn't think that was a Halloween book, but that's just my personal opinion, and this book was a really cozy, sort of whimsical read, and it just reminded me a lot of the fall and Halloween season. And so the person responsible for creating this book is Miss Diana Jones. She was born August 16th, 1934 in London to Majori and Richard Jones, who were both teachers at the time to place her birth in history so you can have a little bit more of a context around the time that she was born. Chancellor Dolphus of Austria is assassinated by the Nazis. The Soviet Union is admitted to the League of Nations. Mao Zedong begins the long march north with 100,000 soldiers, and Hitler becomes the Fuhrer, which is when his chancellorship and his presidency were united into one which we would call today a fascist dictatorship. So the context around her birth was one of strife and stress in Europe and what ultimately led to, of course, what we know now as World War II. When she was five years old, her family had to pack up and move out of London to escape the bombings and warfare that was happening in London. The family moved around from place to place for a few years just trying to find safe ground before they finally settled in Essex where her parents started and ran an educational center. This is where her story kind of becomes a little ironic because her and her sisters 
loved learning. They loved reading and learning all day, but her parents were really sort of absent throughout her childhood. They were occupied by running the educational center, and of course, during the 30s and 40s, women weren't really expected to get a high education or go to college. When her and her sisters expressed to their parents that they wanted to read and be creative, her parents really didn't pay it any mind. It was up to Diana and her sisters to do it on their own. So they started to come up with different stories and plays and they would act them out. And Diana would sort of be the scribe for that and she would write them down. Although she was very dyslexic, she found the utmost joy in reading and writing. As she got older, she did attend St. Anne's College at Oxford. So although her parents never encouraged her to pursue education, she found the motivation to do that on her own and she got into one of the best schools in the world. While there, she got the opportunity to attend lectures by both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who are of course two of the greatest fantasy writers in history. This is also where she met her husband, John Burrow. And another thing that I find interesting is that she decided to keep Jones as her professional name. So all of her books are published under Diana Jones and not Diana Burrow. So that is interesting. And after graduating, she started to write both plays and children's books alike. Her first novel was published in 1973 entitled Changeover. From then on until 2011, she published over 40 books. She would also go on to have three boys with her husband and also lectured at the university John lectured at, which was the University of Bristol. Most all of her work is aimed at children and young adults and is in the fantasy genre. She wrote prolifically all throughout her life and published often. She was even publishing up until the year she passed away. She was a fairly famous writer. Her books sold pretty well. Although she was known publicly in the writing world and for her books, she kept her personal life pretty private. She didn't partake in a lot of interviews and liked to keep a low profile, but she did let the public know that she was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2009. And in 2010, after starting chemotherapy, she underwent a pretty extensive surgery. After the surgery, she reported to friends and family that all went well but only a few months later, she found out that the cancer was growing despite the surgery and the chemo. And so she officially announced that she would not continue it because it wasn't doing anything and it just made her feel ill. It was announced by her family on March 25th, 2011, that she had passed away after her long battle with cancer at the age of 77. She was surrounded by her husband, three sons, and five grandchildren at the time. And I tried to see if there was any more information about her on her website, but the last time it was ever updated was back in 2012, and that was an announcement. It was for a gathering of her fans and to sort of send her off on a final farewell. Her legacy definitely doesn't end there. A lot of very famous writers cite her as inspirations for their own careers, such as J.K. Rowling and Terry Pratchett. So 
if it wasn't for Diana, we may not even have Harry Potter. So I think that her legacy definitely lives on. And one of her most famous books is the one that we're actually going to talk about today, Howl's Moving Castle. This book would definitely be categorized as a high fantasy novel and was published in 1986 by Greenwillow Book Publishing. It is part of a series, but not in the conventional way that we think about series today. If you think of The Hunger Games or Twilight, you may think one book follows the next and it's the same characters and their same story is developing, but this series just keeps the same setting, but it has very different characters in each book. And on top of that, each book was published several years apart from the other one. For instance, the first book, Howl's Moving Castle, and the second book, Castle in the Air, were published 12 years apart from one another. Take that as you will. I don't know if you would necessarily want to categorize that as a series. I mean, maybe. I guess the definition of series can be a little bit flexible. And so upon initial publication, it wasn't widely successful. It sold okay here and there, but it really didn't become successful until about 20 years later. It, first of all, won a really prestigious children's literature award called the Phoenix Award. And this prize is given to books that sort of fall through the cracks initially, but are really wonderful and great books, but maybe they just didn't sell well right? There's a ton of books like that, and it's really sad, but not everyone can read all of the books, and so some of them just unfortunately fall through the cracks. But fortunately for this particular book, it did win this award, which got the sales going a little bit. Then around that same time, the movie adaptation was also in the works, and that was officially on screen in 2004. So we have that to credit for House Moving Castle's literary success. Let's take a short break, and once we get back, we will dive into the summary of the narrative and talk about the movie adaptation. Welcome back, and let's go ahead and get started with the summary. The story opens with Sophie, our protagonist and main character, and her two sisters, Letty and Martha. They are essentially being given instructions by their stepmother, Fanny, as to where they are going to go and fulfill their apprenticeships. Their father has passed away, and Fanny cannot support all of the girls, and so she needs them to go on their way and be the young ladies that they are and take up apprenticeships. So Martha is to go to Miss Fairfax to learn witchcraft and spells, and Letty is to go to the bakery with Cesari and learn how to decorate cakes while Sophie is to remain at the Hatter shop and help run and take over the family business. 
So Sophie soon finds herself getting bored at the hat shop. She feels lonely and she really just starts talking to the hats. She just starts to feel as if she is destined for a simple life. She kind of feels like a failure. She ends up going to see her sister, Letty, at the cake shop and someone comes by and offers her to a drink and she refuses because there is a rumor in the town that Howell who is known as the bad guy he seduces these young women and then he eats their hearts out and so she is to refuse all dates if somebody comes up and asks her and so she says no and she goes on to meet her sister at the bakery and as they're talking and getting to catch up she actually finds out that Martha and Letty have entered into a spell and they've actually switched bodies. So although it looks like Letty, it is Martha. She is saying that the spell will slowly wear off over time. Sophie sort of ends their chat and she goes back to the hat shop where she is met by the Witch of the Waste who cast a spell on her. It makes her grow old and so she has wrinkles and is shorter and her bones ache like she's an old lady. In addition to this spell that the Witch of the Waste has cast, she cannot tell anyone she is under a spell at all and so no one will know that it's Sophie. And so once this happens, Sophie decides that there's no use to stay at the hat shop because once Fanny gets back she will not know that it is her daughter and so she ends up just walking outside of her town of market chipping into what is known as the waste which is just the abandoned field outside she wants to of course find an antidote for her curse but she also knows she won't be accepted at home ends up just walking and she comes across the moving castle this is owned by the mysterious and eccentric cow that i mentioned before this castle is known to move from place to place and you can see it for market chipping, but no one really knows where it's gonna end up next. But as she is walking out of the town, she comes across it. And although Howell has a bad rap, she figures that she appears old and so Howell will not be interested in her. She goes to the house and she is led in by the apprentice Michael. And she also meets Calsper, who is a fire demon and is connected with Howl. And so once she enters the room and gets settled a little bit, Calcifer can see that Sophie has a spell on her. So he's a demon and not just a regular person. So he can see the spell and decides that he wants to strike up a bit of a deal. And that deal is to, the deal is mutually beneficial. If Sophie agrees to help the demon break his curse and get him out of being a flame in the fire and be free so he can go about wherever he wants to instead of being attached to Hal's castle and Hal, he will try and help Sophie break her curse so she can be young again. The, Sophie agrees, but the catch to the deal is that Calcifer cannot specifically say how Sophie is to break his spell. And so she has to figure that out by staying and hanging around the castle and getting clues from different people. She thinks of an alibi, and that alibi is to pose 
as the cleaning lady. And so when Hal comes down, she says, I'm the cleaning lady. I'm here to stay and clean up this mess of a house you have. And it sort of works. Hal doesn't kick her out, but he doesn't necessarily welcome her in with open arms. And so she just kind of stays there. That is when really the rest of the story ensues. What happens next is we learn a lot more information about Howell and how he lives at the castle and how he was able to get his powers. And we also learn that the Witch of the Waste is sort of a mortal enemy to everyone. She is really the biggest antagonist of the story. It's sort of Sophie and Howell and everyone in the house's job to get rid of her because she's caused a lot of trouble, especially with the king. She's even stolen the king's brother and the king's wizard. So it's really up to Howell and Sophie to fight this witch. And that is really what the rest of the book is about. Letty and Martha do make an appearance at the end of the novel in sort of a different capacity than they started out the story with but I will leave that a mystery. I don't want to give everything away. But by the end of the novel, there is a pretty bow on everything and it ends in a pretty satisfactory way, I would say. But this book is definitely about how first appearances are deceiving and how rumors can be detrimental to a person's character. Very heavy themes that I would say are on a middle grades mind. I think that the themes that they talk about in this movie are perfect for that age and it approaches them in a very literary way and a satisfying way to where you can start those conversations if you do read it with a brother or a sister or a child. And so I think that it was a really cute, fun, although serious read. Now, the movie adaptation was directed by Hayao Miyazaki and was made in partnership with Ghibli Studios. I would say that this movie is very loosely based on the book. It is an animated film. The original voice actors was Chaiko Bashial and Takira Kimura, while the dubbed English version stars Gene Simmons. No, not the guy from Kiss with the crazy makeup, but a voice actor of the same name. And she plays Sophie, and then Christian Bale plays Howell. And finally, we have baby Josh Hutcherson, who's, who plays Mikel. So... There is no Michael in the animated version, but it is a boy of about seven or eight. I would say in the book, Michael Howell's apprentice is 15 or 16, but this is actually a child and he's about eight and is played by Josh Hutchinson. So along with the book, one of Miyazaki's inspiration for this film was actually his very strong feelings against the United States entering into war with Iraq or the war on terror. And so really, this book is sort of a mixture of those two things. The backdrop of this movie is against two warring kingdoms and how it turns wizards and people who hold magic into monsters. And in that way, it is very different from the book. We will get in 
to that a little bit more as we talk about the differences, but just know that was a huge inspiration. And so it had its Japanese premiere on November 20th, 2004, and it went on to gross $190 million alone in just Japan, and then $260 more million once it was released worldwide. And this made it one of the most successful Japanese films ever made, even up to date. It was extremely successful, and as a result, created an increased interest in the book, like we talked about before. So it definitely increased Diana's sales as far as publishing goes. On the handy-dandy Trusted Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 93% audience score and an 87% critic score, which is really good. I mean, I would say anything over 80 is pretty good, especially for critic score. As far as anime goes, it's a pretty well-known classic. I think Miyazaki has a great way of creating films that sort of go beyond just the anime world and can really be appreciated by just movie lovers in general because his movies tend to have really strong messages, really strong storytelling skills. There was one critic by the name of David Anson that said, Howl's Moving Castle has the logic of a dream. Behind every door lie multiple realities, one more astounding than the next. Which I would definitely say is true for both the movie and the book. I feel like each are really unique in their own ways, but I would say that individual statement applies to both. So just to give you a heads up, if you were ever to be assigned this novel in class, or you didn't really feel like reading the book and we're just going to watch the movie, you're going to have two completely different experiences or you would just completely fail that English quiz or whatever because each one is very different. When deciding to adapt this movie, Miyazaki gave like specific reasons for that. He was interested in the book initially because a friend of his had let him borrow it because he thought that Miyazaki would enjoy the descriptive and whimsical writing style. And he did, but Miyazaki was extremely interested on how he would animate the castle and make it move. Because a lot of what is left out in regards to talking about how the physics of the castle work, like how does it actually move? Does it float? Does it have legs? Like what is going on with it? And that gave a lot of room for Miyazaki to be extremely creative and sort of come up with his own castle design. And he really liked that. But also sort of during that time period, as he was reading this book, another thing was on the back of his mind as well. And that was the United States deciding to enter the Iraqi war in 2003. Miyazaki was a known pacifist and he did not like the idea that George Bush had declared a war on terror, which is a war on ideology and not in response to a specific attack, right? The war in Afghanistan was attack on 
the Twin Towers being knocked down, but the war in Iraq was an extension of the Iraqi war and it was an extension of what happened, but Iraq really didn't have anything to do with the events of 9-11. And so Miyazaki was extremely against this and as a creative director, he filtered that anger and disdain through this movie. These two interests of him reading this book and him thinking he can be creative with the style and also the war, he combined sort of those two things to make this adaptation. The main difference that lies in the narratives are how they are tied together. In both, you get the story of Sophie being turned into an old lady by the Witch of the Waste, but the Witch of the Waste definitely has a much larger role in the book. She is more intimidating, she has more power, and she is the one and only huge antagonist. While the movie, the antagonist is, I would say, much darker, and that is war and what it can mean to a place, to people and families, and you definitely have that level of depth within the movie that doesn't necessarily exist in the book. While in the book, The Witch of the Waste ties everything together, in the movie, it's really the war that's going on in between these two neighboring kingdoms. And so the kingdom that is next to Ingeri, which is the one that, of course, Hal and Sophie and everyone live in, the king thinks that the neighboring town has abducted the prince and has holding him hostage and so therefore the king declares war but in all reality the prince has actually been given a spell and is a scarecrow that sophie at the end revives into the prince but that obviously isn't known at the beginning and so the king starts the war so that overarching narrative aspect is completely different there are a lot of small differences between the book and the movie that would just take 45 minutes to an hour to list off every single one most of them are minor character shifts and things of that nature. Stuff that you would easily be able to point out, but I think it's important to talk about the bigger overarching narrative structure because it really changes the maturity level of the movie. This is definitely still accessible to kids, but in the movie I just think that it explores more mature themes that would maybe be a little bit more difficult to have with a middle age student. So just keep that in mind as you're going to watch it. There are some scenes with the monsters that Hal fights once he goes into the war dimension. They're pretty scary looking and I'm not going to lie, I was like, oh, when I saw them. So if you have any young kids, you may want to skip this movie, but I think middle grades would be fine, but it just may be a little difficult to have those themes about what the atrocities of war causes, or maybe it would be good. I don't necessarily know what age I, I mean, I'm still contemplating that philosophical idea and question of pacifism and what does war mean, and people will, I think, talk about that for ages, but to introduce it, I don't know what age would be appropriate, so maybe that is something you're 
middle school kids are ready for and maybe it's not. I'm not sure. But as far as it being a good adaptation, I think that it is a good adaptation, although it's completely unlike the book. And really what qualifies as a good adaptation for me is, is there any artistic value added? Obviously, if you're taking anything that's just written on pages and turning it into something visual, something that has dimensions, has a setting that's going to take artistic direction, even if you're trying to make it as similar to the book as possible. But Mirazaki really took it to the next level and he had this strong message that he wanted to get across about the philosophical ideas of war and pacifism and what war can do. Combining that with this inspiration he had about this moving castle was really amazing. I think that he did a good job at it. Now, I will say that my one flub, I guess, that I had with the book and the movie is that I really don't feel like it fleshed things out enough. What I mean by that is there's just so many plot holes and kind of questions left unanswered. I feel like this can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? Especially if you're reading to kids, it can be more of a good thing because their creative minds can sort of fill in these plot holes and think about what they would maybe put in place of a question or what have you. But for me, as I was reading it, I just kept asking myself over and over again, like, this wasn't tied up at the end or this wasn't finished all of the way and it was just sort of confusing. If you think about some of our best fantasy books like Lord of the Rings or or Game of Thrones or things like that, these books tend to be a whole entire series of five or six books with hundreds of pages in each book and the reason it is like this is because on top of all of the things a writer is expected to do, create characters, create character development, create a plot, create a challenge for the characters to overcome, they're expected to create a whole new world. 329 pages or a two-hour movie is not necessarily enough to do this. It is a little bit difficult for me to close the book and be completely satisfied just because I had so many questions and I feel like Mir Azaki creating this movie in response to a question that he had, how is the castle moving, is sort of a great metaphor for that. It continues with the movie because he introduces new ideas too that are sort of left unanswered in some places. Although it was okay, I wouldn't say that I absolutely love the book. I thought that her writing style was really amazing. She had a very distinct writing style that was whimsical and fun, and same goes for the movie. Obviously, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli have a very unique animation style, and it's amazing, especially to think that this movie was made in 2004. It's outstanding, but I just think that there could be more to the storytelling to add a more satisfactory ending where questions are answered in a more thorough way. But as far as what we have to work with, I do think that it was an excellent adaptation and Mirazaki really made it his own while 
honoring what Diana had started in her storytelling. So on Goodreads, I gave this story a three stars out of five, and on Rotten Tomatoes, I gave this score an 80 out of 100. So guys, that about wraps everything up here today. Episode three is done. Yay! Thanks for stopping by, and if you've made it this far through all my rambling and talking, thank you so much, and I appreciate you all for the support. There is a new episode every Monday on here, and you can find it wherever podcasts are located. Like I said before, we're now on Apple Podcasts, so now we're seriously on wherever podcasts are located. If you would like to contact me for questions, concerns, or to put in a request for an upcoming episode, please email me at adaptablepodcastbusiness at gmail.com. That's adaptable, A-D-A-P-T-A-B-L-E, podcastbusiness at gmail.com. Next week, I will be reading something I'm really excited about in a book that I actually studied in college, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. I adore the Bronte sisters and I'm so excited to be able to read a book. And I think this will be exciting because the book is definitely well known and I really haven't heard of anybody watching the movie. There's a movie that came out in 1970, so I'm excited to get to watch that and I am so excited to hopefully have you be joining me next week to join in on that episode. So I will see you guys then. Bye.